Thank you for tuning in to Historical Homicide. I'm your host, Christina Bentley, here to confront our local murder history through the existential lens of what ifs and what would you do's. As we enter the world of the unsettling and macabre, ask yourself, how far would you go to ensure the well-being of those you love? What would you do out of desperation? Jamestown, New York, 1871. Americans are in the throes of the Second Industrial Revolution. People are flocking from rural farmlands to urban cities to find factory work. And they aren't alone. Many immigrants are flooding the United States in search of a better life. City life is bustling, and our little corner of the world isn't any different. With all this arduous factory work, where does one go to unwind? The saloon, of course. Pull up my horse and buggy. Hold on to your bustled skirts, ladies. We're going for a ride. Come with me as we explore this tale of gruesome deeds, swindling conmen, false confessions, and lies. But first, let's discuss the players in our story. First, we meet William Bachman, a businessman from Toledo, Ohio, interested in buying property along Chautauqua Lake. It isn't his first trip to the area, and he's already put a sour taste in some local mouths. Did I say businessman? More like a swindling con man. But these country bumpkins aren't intelligent enough to know that. Or so he thinks. Next up is Charles Marlowe, a brewery owner who has fallen on hard times. This guy's in some pretty deep debt. He houses not only his wife and children, but his sister-in-law and mother-in-law as well. He is the breadwinner for his family and provides for them by brewing beer, loading it up on his buggy, and delivering it to local bars and saloons. What he wouldn't do to change his circumstances. Or a better question, what would he do? Then we have Valentin Benkowski, a Polish immigrant who speaks little to no English. He's been working for Marlowe for about a month at the brewery, it's not the best job, but at least he has a little pay and a boarded room at Marlowe's house. These are the major characters. How do they look on the surface? Honest or deceiving? Satisfied or hungry? It's August 1871. The air is hot and sticky. There is the scent of industry and sweat in the air. The workday is done, and it's time for relaxation. Let's follow these soot-covered workers over to the saloon. And we're just in time. Looking around the crowded saloon, we find that Charles Marlowe is delivering some fresh kegs. What luck! And now, let's scan the room again. It looks like there's a crowd around some wealthy newcomer to town. His wallet looks pretty full. Word travels fast. The rumor is, that's William Bachman from Toledo. He looks like a well-dressed man, who has definitely had too much to drink. He's bragging about all his money and even offering to buy the saloon? Mm. Discretion is lost on him. As a side note, if you've ever watched the cinematic feature Pete's Dragon, you'll remember the flamboyant con man Doc Terminus. That's the kind of traveling swindler William Bachman reminds me of. Okay, back to the story. This display catches Marlowe's attention. He needs money. Badly. 
desperately. Maybe if he can get close enough to Bachman, his luck will change. Marlowe walks over and starts up conversation. There's no harm in trying, right? The two drink together, and as the evening progresses, Bachman realizes he needs a place to crash for the night. Marlowe offers his spare room, even though his employee Benkowski is staying there. They can share the room. As an aside, this is strange to us now, to share a room, right? But it wasn't uncommon then. Guests frequently stayed together in rooms, even if they were not acquainted. Only wealthy people could afford an abundance of privacy. As Bogman drunkenly stumbles into Bankowski's room, he throws up. Everywhere. Bankowski yells at him and is stuck cleaning up the mess. This job becomes worse every day. He can't take much more of this. The night passes, and shortly before 6 a.m., Bachman wakes up and leaves Marlowe's house. He's most likely sobering up from his night of fun and going out to find business deals in town. He heads back to the saloon we initially met him in. Now, Marlowe, nervous that he's let a financial opportunity slip away, runs back into town, finds Bachman, and brings him back to his brewery. They walk past Benkowski and go straight to the drinking room. What better place to discuss business? But Marlowe's options are running thin. If he can't get his debts paid by conning a con man, then what can he do? There's only one clear option. Marlowe guides Bachman to the cellar and boom! Marlowe fires his Smith & Wesson model number one at Bachman. He's hit, falls down, and dies. I can only imagine Marlowe grabbing his wallet and having a moment of triumph. But as with most murders, the most complicated part is disposing of the body. More on that in a minute. Let's rewind. Marlowe and Bachman are in the cellar when Benkowski hears them arguing and hears the sound of something like a gunshot from the building as he leaves to run errands. He keeps going, not giving the noise too much thought. Now, while Bankowski is running his errands, he feels like something is off. He had heard loud voices from the cellar before he left, but doesn't understand English. He brushes the nagging thoughts out of his head and continues back home to Marlowe's house. Upon arriving, he notices how warm the house is. It's a hot day, after all, but not this hot. Marlowe looks off as well. There appears to be blood on his forehead and boots. But he's asking Benkowski to go out and get more firewood. Firewood? On a hot August day? Something isn't adding up, but Benkowski runs the errand anyway. As soon as he collects the wood, Benkowski quits his employment at Marlowe's Brewery. This is the last straw. He doesn't want to be tangled up in whatever Marlowe is doing. After a brief interrogation by Marlowe, his wife Augusta, and Augusta's mother, Julia Ortman, about what he saw, or didn't see, he's paid and released from his job at the brewery. Before we continue on with Bachman's fate, let's follow Bankowski. 
He's obviously jolted by what he claims he didn't see, but he can't really speak English, and who would believe him anyway? He wants to get out of town, so he boards a train to Dunkirk and speaks to some friends about his crazy experience in Jamestown. But Benkowski's story of Marlowe travels fast. And after Bachman is mysteriously missing from appointments in town, the police, on Benkowski's word, make their way to Marlowe's house to arrest him as a murder suspect. As the police search the residence-slash-brewery, they find blood spatters all over the arch of the furnace, all over the cellar floor. They find blood everywhere. And although the ashes have recently been shoveled, they discover bits of bone and an arm from the elbow down. The grotesque scene continues as they search the ash bucket outside to find part of a skull, more bones, teeth, shirt studs, vest buttons and buckles, and a boot, all belonging to William Bachman. Charles and Augusta had hacked Bachman's body to pieces and attempted to burn it. Poorly, I might add. They are taken to the county jail to await trial. Charles as a murder suspect, Augusta as an accomplice. There's a mountain of evidence already stacked against Charles. To start with, people at the saloon saw Bachman leave with Marlowe and never saw him after that. Saloon patrons also recognized Bachman's distinctive shirt studs, the ones located in the ash bucket outside Marlowe's house. Benkowski heard arguing and the gunshot. Even the neighbors complained of thick smoke and the smell of burning meat emanating from Marlowe's house on the day Bachman's body was savagely torn apart and burned. And the police literally saw blood on Marlowe. But then, a shocking confession. Mrs. Julia Ortman, Marlowe's mother-in-law, confesses to the murder of William Bachman. The courtroom is aghast. She claims to have come to the defense of her daughter who was being assaulted by Bachman. But how does that explain the blood on Marlowe's forehead and boots? His excuse? He had just butchered a calf or shot a dog. He couldn't remember which of the two. Of course, none of this is true, and the prosecution is able to find many holes in Mrs. Ortman's and Marlowe's stories. It's an unsuccessful attempt to save Marlowe, who is now sentenced to death by hanging. Marlowe made several other escape attempts while incarcerated, awaiting his death. But after many failed plans, Marlowe faced the gallows on August 8, 1872. There were so many spectators that the sheriff had to ask the front viewers to kneel down so the back of the crowd could see. He died quickly, and his hanging was the last public hanging in Chautauqua County. Reflecting on this case, we see that people don't make the best decisions when they're acting out of desperation. They make mistakes, they turn ugly. Charles Marlowe saw an opportunity to help himself and his family. Julia Ortman made a false confession, probably trying to save the family. If they didn't have Charles as breadwinner, what would happen to them? 
William Bachman was a con man and a swindler. He showed off his money obnoxiously. But did he deserve his fate? If we saw the same opportunity, would we take it? Ponder these thoughts until next time. For pictures from today's podcast, please visit me at Historical Homicide on Instagram and click follow. Thank you for listening. Tune in to the next episode of Historical Homicide entitled Control, airing April 19th. Mm-hmm.